take your hymnal, open it up to hymn number 245. And here's, here's my plan a little bit, is to have the hymnal in one hand and have the Bible in the other hand. Just letting the hymnal set the agenda for our topics of what we will we'll look at um, during this Christmas season. But really get at the Bible and just see how these themes are coming out and see how they are, are really true. As you can see at the bottom of hymn number 245, um, maybe look at the small print, maybe you've ever, never even noticed these before, you, you see there that it's, it, the text here is called a Latin hymn. Um, it was probably written in the 1200s to, to 1300s, very old hymn in the Bible, um, it's not quite the oldest like Ryan mentioned today, um, but it is a, a pretty old hymn, but was compiled for the first time in this Psalteriolum can. Sionium Catholicarum. And that is a, a Catholic um, assembling together of hymns. And, and the guy who did it was this guy whose name is John Neal. He translated there the first two stanzas of, of this hymn, but taking it from the Old Latin. He was really interested in these Old Latin hymns. And in fact, turn back to hymn number 240 that we began, that we sang, Of the Father's Love Begotten. It is no accident that though the text is 4th century, look who translated this text. Who translated it? What's his name? John Neal. He had a, an interest in old Latin texts and wanting to bring those and bringing the richness of, of these into the church. Really, the Catholic, he was Anglican, I think, but he had Catholic leanings. But he wanted to, he wanted to bring these into the church and we can, we can rejoice in that of what... Uh, what he has done, and just a side, a side note, um, he was really against Isaac Watts in his day. There were like, you know, there are worship wars today in terms of what should be sung in church, whether it's ancient hymns or modern hymns or choruses or what, what should be sung. There were worship wars back then. And some said, oh, you can only sing the Psalms. And some said, no, you can sing some other things. Well, Isaac Watts, one of the things he did was he, he took all the Psalms, put them in rhyme and meter, but Christ, uh, Christocentralized them, made them cross-oriented, so took a lot of liberties with the text. Well, John Neal did not like that at all, and so they were like big time battling here. He wanted to go back to these ancient texts and bring out the richness of, of Jesus in them um, rather than the Isaac Watts just um, maybe freer with Scripture. And so there's a big battle. But today that battle has all been dropped and lost and forgotten, and these hymns stand side by side without any thought of... Uh, of the warring that they had with each other. Well, anyway, this is a true Christmas hymn. It was sung in the Roman Catholic Church, and I'm not sure maybe still today is, but it was sung historically uh, after this uh, book was put together for Christmas Vespers. It's just a, a week-long series of, of, of uh, services from December 17th to the 23rd in just anticipation of Jesus um, and, and you can see there the name of the tune. It's in all capital letters down there at the bottom. It's called Veni Emmanuel. Veni Emmanuel. Now, if you know Latin, you know what that means. But if you know some Spanish, you can make a good guess. And so what do you think that means? Veni Emmanuel. Who wants to take, make a guess at that? Yes, Gage. Come Emmanuel. And the fact that the, the tune is named after this Latin come Emmanuel, how it was, we probably sing this song to the same tune 
that they sang it in the 1200s and the 1300s. Well, maybe there's a little bit of alteration, but the same similar sort of, of feel. So think about this. The church for hundreds of years has sang this song in this way. Now, I know a lot of, a lot of hymns are, are rewritten to modern um, <clears throat> sounds. Ryan, don't, don't mess with this one, okay? It's been sung. This one's not broke, okay? Some, some of them are broke. This one's not broke, okay? Some hymns sound kind of schmaltzy. I'm like, yeah, let's change those. But this one is, is right and true. It fits right with the, the theme and the heart um, of, the, of the text. And also, it, um, it, it captures the mood and it's been sung forever. So, just to put this to in our minds, let's just sing it a cappella. I don't want to sing a solo. I want us to sing a cappella here all together. Ready? Here we go. Oh, come, oh, come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel that mourns in lonely exile here. Until the Son of God appear, rejoice, rejoice, Emmanuel shall come to thee, O Israel. How appropriate this is sung in a minor key. I don't know all the details about this, but the, the hymnody of Russia a hundred years ago when they're under the, the communistic oppression or the, the, the recent hymns when they're under the communist oppression were mostly minor keys because it's a sad, sorrowful sort of sound, a, a longing sort of sound. And, and that is what this is. This is a prayer this is a prayer of distress and calling upon God to come and deliver us. It's not a song of celebration. It's a, it's a song of hope when living in dark times. It, do, it doesn't lead us to rejoicing in happiness. It leads us to the solemn pleading with God that, that God would come. And that yet there is joy, right? That the refrain, rejoice. Rejoice. And here's the promise. Emmanuel shall come to thee, O Israel. There, there's this, this, this promise that yes, you will be delivered. And so there is this hope. But the, the joy is not a, a joy happiness that we're experiencing now. The, the joy is this, this solemn hope in something better to come. It's oftentimes the, the doxology is sung at solemn moments. When, when things are hard, when it's been a difficult circumstance, maybe a death of a loved one, and it's praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above the heavenly hosts. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Those, those songs are sung in, 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 in times of anguish oftentimes. Are appropriate to be sung in times like just reminding yourself that though things are dark, yet I can still praise and worship God. And so likewise here that that though things are dark and though though we're having troubles and though we're having difficulties and and though our our world is in disorder and though there's quarrels and conflicts, yet God, we are are longing for you to come and we have this assurance that you are are going to come. Well, Emmanuel means that God is coming, right? Em, better. 
im, I am, rather than em, but a lot of, a lot of translations have it em, that's okay. Im means with. Anu is the personal pronoun us. El is God. With us, God. Or, or God with us is what Emmanuel means. So it says, O come, O come, Emmanuel. O come, O come, God, and dwell with us and be with us and help us and rescue us. These words of this song are couched in, in terms of, 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 of being put ourselves in Israel's situation. When they're in captivity, when they're in Israel, and we remember back of what it is that they were singing. Remember, this, this song wasn't written back then. It was written in the 1200s, 1300s, as if we were Israel singing back, anticipating the coming of the Messiah. And so we can sing that as we think about celebrating Christmas. That's exactly what they were doing. They're looking at towards the, the coming of the Messiah. And, and we, between Advents, can also look both ways. We can say, oh yes, that's what they were longing for, 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 for uh, Emmanuel to come and deliver them. But we can also look forward, and, and we'll see later, this hymn does indeed look forward but these Jews in exile in Babylon needing help, where'd they turn? They turned to the Lord. Invited Him to come. They, they knew they had no resources in and of themselves. They needed the Lord to help. In fact, that's the theme of every single one of these stanzas here in this hymn. Look at this. You see right there, right at the top. Stanza 1. O come. Stanza 2. O come. Stanza 3. O come. Stanza 4. O come. Now we have only... Four stanzas in our hymnal, but John Neal um, translated five stanzas to this. And do you know what the other three that aren't even in here are? O come, O come, O come. Or in the Latin, what's the Latin word for that again? Veni, Veni, Veni. Oh God, come, come, come. And, and I say, what a great word for us that is this morning. We should just stop and... And pause this. Isn't this the gospel, right? That we're in trouble. We need help. There's sin has brought us to despair. We know we can't do it on our own. We need forgiveness. And so we need the Lord to come and grant us grace through Jesus Christ. And the great promise is this, that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. You call upon the name of the Lord in your distress and in your trouble and you, you bow to your knee and you submit yourself to the Lord's way. And you call upon the name of the Lord and the promise of Scripture is that you will be Saved. And those who sing this hymn are, are longing for something more. They're, they're longing for God to come and help and deliver them. In fact, I, I just want to read through each of these stanzas. And I want you to see that each of them describe a, a, a trouble and a pleading to the Lord to come. Or, or maybe a pleading to the Lord to come because of the trouble that has come. And this, by the way, is a totally biblical, it's a totally biblical theme. In fact, I thought originally to uh, to just preach on this theme like like we've read from Psalm 80 and from Isaiah 64 about God coming and being with us. But I, I picked another theme. But we could have done that. We could have gone through all of Scripture and just looked at how many times that people's in trouble and pleading to God. So like Book of Judges is all about that. Or people in distress and kings in distress or, or trouble and crying out to the Lord and God is delivering them and God is coming in a in a marvelous way. We, we could have done that, but I'm going to take a little bit different tact. But just saying that is such the theme of this hymn and that's such the theme of the Scripture. So let, let's just look at how we see the, the pleading to the Lord to come to help in light of our problems. Stanza 1, O come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel that mourns in lonely exile here until the Son of God 
appear. Ancient Israel in exile, they needed help. They pleaded the Lord would come and deliver them. Or stanza two, O come thou day spring, come and cheer our spirits by thine advent here. Disperse the gloomy clouds of night and death's dark shadows put to flight. The picture here is darkness and gloom and death and sadness and sorrow. And the plea is that the day spring would come and enlighten and illumine the dark. Remove the night, remove the shadows and bring the light. Stanza three. O come thou wisdom from on high and order all things far and nigh. To us the path of knowledge show and cause us in her ways to go. The, the picture here is a world of confusion and, and ignorance and disorder. And so the plea is for wisdom to come and to rule the day that, that the world would live in order in the ways of God. Stanza 4. And here we see the, the second coming. O come desire of nations, bind all peoples in one heart and mind. Bid envy, strife, and quarrels cease. Fill the whole world with heaven's peace. And here we see constant fighting and friction and conflict. And so the plea is that the desire of nations would come to bring heaven's peace among the earth. It's what this psalm is all about. It's what this hymn is all about. It's what the Scripture is really all about. We, we, we are in trouble and we need help. And who are we going to turn to but turn to the Lord to come and help deliver us. Well, one thing I want you to notice here is how every stanza we see a different name of God invoked. And this is where I'm going to go with my message today. Different name of God invoked. First stanza, the name of God is Emmanuel. O come, O come, Emmanuel. What's the, what's the name of God in stanza two? Was it? Day spring. Not a word you use often, but we'll we'll dig into that word. What it is? Uh, what about um, stanza three? What's the what's the name of God there? Wisdom. And what about stanza four? O come, desire of nations. In fact, in, in the other stanzas that, that didn't make it to our, our our hymnal, same thing. O come, rod of Jesse. Maybe you've sung that version before. That that one. O come, rod of Jesse. Or come, King of David. Or, O come, O come, Adonai, which simply means the Lord. But, but every name brings a solution to a particular problem we face. Emmanuel, God needs to come into the flesh to ransom us from our sins. Dayspring needs to come to give light for our dark path. Wisdom needs to bring order out of a confused humanity. And the desire of nations must come to bring peace to this warring world but every stanza, by the way, is calling upon the name of the Lord. I, I, I quoted earlier, but Romans 10:13, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So calling upon multiple names of the Lord is what's taking place in this stanza and the promises that will be saved. And all of these names, by the way, have their origin in Scripture. So this morning, as we set our hymnal sort of aside and, and turn to the Bible, what I want to do is just take those four names and just kind of trace them through the Scriptures. Each of them very quickly on a, a surface level. I want to look at Emmanuel, stanza one. I want to look at Dayspring. I want to look at Wisdom. I want to look at Desire of Nations. Now, some of these are more familiar than others, like particularly Emmanuel. Emmanuel is very familiar to us. We sang about it today. Um, in that, that song, 
Chris Tomlin wrote that song. I'm not sure. And uh, just sang Emmanuel a lot. We just know what that means. But a good place to see it in Scripture is Matthew chapter 1. So let's open our Bibles to Matthew chapter 1. This is where we read of the birth of Jesus Christ. I just want to read, starting in chapter 1, verse 18. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. Matthew 1.19 And Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her, planned to send her away secretly. But when he had considered this, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Now all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means, of course, you know that now, right? God with us. And Joseph awoke from his sleep and did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took Mary as his wife, but kept her a virgin until she gave birth to a son. And he called his name Jesus. The coming of Jesus was a fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecy given long ago through the hand of Isaiah. We see there in verse 23, that's a reference back to Isaiah chapter 14. Judah at that time was in trouble. Uh, the kingdom in the south was being attacked um, by, by two kings, Aram and by Ahaz, Israel, was coming to attack the, the tribes of, of Judah. And the Lord went to Isaiah and said, told him to go to Ahaz and comfort him. And he said, go to Ahaz and tell him this. Take care and be calm. Have no fear and don't be faint-hearted. Isaiah 7.4 He said, their plans to defeat you shall not stand. They shall not come to pass. Isaiah 7.7 In order to give further comfort, God gave Ahaz this incredible opportunity. He says, you, you just name your sign and, and, and I'll do it. Make it as high as heaven or as deep as Sheol, as deep as the pit of the grave or as high as the heavens above. You make that sign and I'll show you how powerful, how true this promise is. And Ahaz refused. And so God said, okay, let me give you this sign. And God made it as high as heaven. He said, Isaiah 7, 14, Behold, a virgin will be a child and bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel. And that exact prophecy was fulfilled in Mary. She was a virgin, not known a man, conceived, gave birth to a son, and the son was nothing less than God himself. Jesus Christ, God in the flesh. That's Emmanuel. This is, this is Jesus foretold 700 years earlier of the manner of life in which Jesus would be born. And he came, Jesus did, with a purpose. Look back at verse 21. She will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. See, when God came to earth in the form of a man, he came with a mission. He came with a mission of salvation to save his people from their sins. And he did something that we could never do for ourselves. He saved us not on the basis of deeds which we've done in righteousness. He saved us not because of our goodness, but He saved us by His mercy, dying upon the cross for our sins, dying in our place, taking our sins in His body and giving us His righteousness, which He lived. And He simply calls us to believe. Believe 
the sign of the virgin birth, believe that God walked on the earth. Believe that he died for our sins. That was the, the hope of ancient Israel is that God would come and be among them. And that's really the hope of Christmas that we set our hearts upon. We focus upon the, the child who would come and, and ransom us. Well, that's Emmanuel. We, we know about Emmanuel. Let's go on to the next one. Stanza two, day spring. Oh, come thou day spring. Come and cheer our spirits by thine advent here. And so the idea is our spirits are down, but we need the day spring to come and cheer us. Disperse the gloomy clouds of night and death's dark shadows put to flight. Now, you can think about Israel during the time of the exile was a dreary, terrible, awful, hard, hard time. And yet they were longing for deliverance. And the Bible reference here to day spring comes in Luke chapter 1. So why don't you turn there. Another Christmas story setting. Luke chapter 1. And the reference is found in Luke chapter 1, verse 78. I just want to read it in the New American Standard. And I want to see if you can pick out where day spring is. Because of the tender mercy of our God, with which the sunrise from on high will visit us. How is day spring translated there? Sunrise. And in fact, that's what, that's what day spring is, right? It's, the, it's the, the, that time of day where day is springing into forth. That is the, the sunrise. That's how the ESV translates it. The NIV says the rising sun, but the King James Version say day spring. They, they all mean the same thing, the time of the, the sunshine. And so look at the day spring when Jesus comes and visits us. That's what we celebrate the Christmas time. So let's just put this verse in context a little bit. This is the, this is the prophecy of Zechariah after John the Baptist is born and upon his circumcision. He said his name will be John. He believed and, and God then gave him this prophecy. We see in verse 67, and his father, that is John's father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying this, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel. For he has visited us and accomplished redemption for his people. Now, Zechariah knew, he knew that the Lord had visited Israel. He was a high priest that year, you remember? And on Yom Kippur, when he went into the Holy of Holies, he saw the angel of the Lord who confronted him right there. And he saw him, he appeared to him. And Zechariah was told that his son would prepare the way for the coming Messiah. Chapter 1, verse 17. Says that the angel said, Your son, Elijah, is going to go as a forerunner to turn the hearts of their fathers back to their children, and the disobedient to the attitude of the righteous, so as to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. So Zechariah knew that God had visited them, and, and from his standpoint it was it was all finished. Right? That that redemption was accomplished for his people. Seeing it all done, even though it wasn't done in history, but he would do it. In 69, he continues. And has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of David, his servant. As he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show mercy toward our fathers and to remember his holy covenant. The oath which he swore to Abraham, our father, to grant that we, being rescued from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear, in holiness and righteousness, before him all of our days. 
Zechariah knew the coming of the Messiah was in accordance with the many promises that God had given to his people. Uh, promises of mercy, promises of grace, promises of deliverance. And he said this, this coming of John or Elijah to prepare the way of the Lord is nothing more than just everything that God has promised before in the past. And then in verse 76, he prophesies over his son. He, he's certainly looking at John there and he's saying, a new child, but a baby, eight days old perhaps. But you, my child will be called the prophet of the Most High. For you will go on to prepare the Lord, will go on before the Lord to prepare His ways, to give to His people the knowledge of salvation by the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God which which the sunrise from on high will visit us to shine upon those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death to guide our feet in the way of peace. John will prepare the way for the sunrise to come. Because when, when Jesus came, the sun shone and the light came into the world. What did Jesus say? I am the light of the world. The constant theme of His. right? He who follows Me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. See, that's the message of Christmas, right? That Christ has come and shone in our hearts to give us the light of the Gospel, the glory of Christ. 2 Corinthians 4, to bring us from darkness to light. When, when Matthew is commenting upon the ministry of Jesus, he quotes from Isaiah 9, the people who were sitting in darkness saw a great light, and those who were sitting in the land in shadow of death, upon them a light has dawned. And so there's the metaphor of, of salvation, is that we were, we were dark, and yet, yet Christ came and He illumined us. He made us light to see. I can't help here, but the... Think about the um, allusions to the moral darkness and light that Paul refers to in Ephesians 4. Remember that you formerly were in the darkness, but now you're children of light. Therefore, walk as children of light. Right? It's the same thing we're talking about here. We're talking about darkness and gloom and sorrow and sin, and yet Christ has come to open our eyes to see the glories of Jesus that we'd walk in a different way. And that's Jesus coming to enlighten our eyes. To give, verse 77 says, the people a knowledge of salvation by the forgiveness of sins. They might be saved because their sins are totally forgiven. So I think this Christmas season, I think about the, the lights that will shine. And uh, everyone's putting up lights. You know, we've got a candle shining down there. We've got some lights here. As lights go, I just encourage you to think about how appropriate it is, right? When, when lights are on, just direct yourself towards Jesus, the light of the world. Now, lights is not unique to Christmas in, in any way. When I was over in uh, India and Nepal, it was the celebration of Tihar, which is a celebration of lights. They had lights all over the place. Okay, I mean, it's just a common theme in life, from darkness to light. But it is a, a biblical theme of Scripture. And I just encourage you, if lights are put up, even if they're put up in a secular way, focus your attention upon Christ, who's the light of the world. He's the day spring coming forth. All right. Emmanuel, day spring. Let's look at stanza three. O come thou wisdom from on high and order all things far and nigh to us the path of knowledge show and cause us in her ways to go. And a great place to see this wisdom theme is 1 Corinthians chapter 1. So let's, let's turn over there. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. It's in the second half of this chapter. I want to focus our attention. He's talking about our salvation. And he's talking about our salvation, that God has filled us with the wisdom of Christ. Not the wisdom of the world, but the wisdom of Jesus. Because in the wisdom of God to the world, this wisdom appears 
as foolishness. I was talking to Ryan McDowell yesterday at the mall. He was just talking about how people just don't understand. Right, Ryan? I mean, and if you share the gospel with people, you know how they just don't understand. I mean, you can put truth there and it's like, like bounces off. They just don't, don't understand it because it's the wisdom of God is seen by people as total and utter foolishness. But all, all we can do is just put forth the wisdom of God. People might see it as foolishness, but God sees it the other way that they're being foolish for not accepting that wisdom, which will, will come out here. So, 1 Corinthians 1.18. The wisdom theme comes here. And particularly even Jesus is identified as being wisdom, the wisdom which will set aside all, all foolishness. Here's what we read. For the word of the cross, it's the message of the gospel, Jesus Christ crucified. The word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved is the power of God. There's one message going forth and getting two responses. From some it's saying foolish, some it's saying, wow, that's power. For it is written, God says, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. Where's the wise men? Where's the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God. God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For indeed, Jews ask for signs and Greeks search for wisdom. We preach Christ crucified. The Jews a stomach block. The Gentiles foolishness. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, here it is, Christ the power of God and Christ the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. And the, the contrast here in this passage between the, the wisdom of God, the foolishness of men, but how wise men think themselves, and yet God considers them foolish, right? You remember Psalm 14, verse 1? The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. So though he's wise, and who is it who says there's no God today? Besides one of the guys you were talking about, so there's no God. So I was there you talking with him. Who says no God? But the wise of the world, right? Those who, who've got it all figured out, right? The, the Stephen Hawking's and the, the, the bright guys of the world, the professors of the university. These are the guys who got it all figured out. They said there's no God. And what does God call them? Fools. And in God's wisdom, He planned that the wisdom of men would be foolish in His sight. But it's the foolish in the world's sight who believe the simple message of the cross, who believe and trust in the, the wisdom of God. And verse 24, here it is. Jesus is called wisdom. I do believe that's what stanza 3 is, is aiming towards here. Come, come thou wisdom from on high and order all things far and nigh. To us the path of knowledge show and cause us in our ways to go. Right? The knowledge of God is not there. We, we don't understand, but God, we need your wisdom so that you will cause us to walk in that way and in that knowledge and you think about our world. I mean, that, that describes our world today. It's a, it's a mess with all our learning and, and all our achievements and, and, and all of our efforts. What have it got for us? Well, it's got some tall buildings, right? Got some, got some spaceships to the moon and Mars and comets and other places. But what's it got for us? Not a lot. Strife and conflict, quarrels and confusion. It's not brought us to God. 
Yet Jesus Christ, who is our wisdom, has brought us to God. That's what we celebrate at Christmas time. Jesus has come to be our wisdom. He, he's brought us to bring us to God, to make us wise. And God has so decreed it. It's not the wise of the world who understands. The simple is the weak. And that's the, the theme of what he continues to go on. Look at verse 26. He says, consider your calling, brethren. And I say, Rock Valley Bible Church, consider your calling. We've been considering the calling of, of people as we, Yvonne and I think about writing this book. We had such a great time with the REITs and the Breckenridges going over your testimonies, how God has saved you. And uh, when I have some more meetings with others of you, just seeing the manifold ways of God. But consider your calling. <clears throat> he says this, Breckenridges, REITs, Brandon, whoever. There are not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble. He says, when you think about your church, it's not the wise people of the world. It's not the, it's not the strong people of the world. It's not the mighty. It's not, it's not the noble. Those who have been, been born of a high class. No, the church is for low class people. But God has chosen, and this is a design of God, chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. And the base things of the world to despise. And the despise, God has chosen the things that are not so that He may nullify the things that are. So that... No man may boast before God. But by His doing you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption so that just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Just consider your calling. Think about who you were. You're not strong and mighty and noble. In fact, you are, are weak and foolish, but God is the one who has done it all. God is the one who has given us His wisdom. Right? Verse 30, by his doing, you're in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom of God. I mean, coming into God's kingdom was, was God's idea, and he brings us into his kingdom, but it's his doing that does that, and he gives us his wisdom. So, the natural conclusion of that is, verse 29 and verse 31, don't boast before God, but let him who boasts, boast in this, that he knows the Lord. And so, that's, that's where anyone stands before God, is it says, Christ, you have become my wisdom and, and you're everything and any, any smarts and right understanding I have of you is, is from you. And so I'm going to boast not in my own spiritual understanding and discernment. I'm going to boast in your wisdom that you have given to me. It's a, it's a position of salvation. The humble beggar, not the proud, arrogant, I've got it all figured out one, but the one who says, I haven't got it figured out, God. I'm crying out to you. Oh, come, be my wisdom. All right. Fourth one, and this is the most tricky of them all. O come, desire of nations, bind all peoples in one heart and mind. Bid envy, strife, and quarrels cease. Fill the whole world with heaven's peace. Now, this, this phrase, desire of nations, um, we sang it today. <clears throat> Hymn number 244. So just look, look back on the other side of this. This is Charles Wesley. So he wrote 1740s, 1750s, 60s, something like that. He says um, in the second stanza, Come thou long expected Jesus, born to set thy people free. From our fears and sins release us. Let our find our rest in thee. Israel's strength and consolation, hope of all the earth thou art. Here it is. Dear desire of every nation, joy of every longing heart. It's called the desire of nations. This phrase comes from an obscure verse in the Old Testament by an obscure prophet named Haggai. It's 
So why don't we turn to Haggai. And if you haven't trouble finding that, go to Matthew, which is the beginning of your Bible, and turn back like two or three, four pages, and he's the third prophet back. Haggai. Um, he's, this book is a book of encouragement. Judah had been brought back from exile into the land uh, after they'd been exiled for 70 years because 70 years beforehand, Babylon had come and destroyed Jerusalem, wiped it out, and now a small remnant had returned and faced a difficult task of rebuilding Jerusalem. And their focal point was, was all in the temple. And they were looking to um, rebuild this temple. And many were discouraged by the work particularly the old men who'd seen the glories of the Solomonic Temple and now saw this little temple and were discouraged because they remembered the glory days of Solomon and this building seemed so insignificant. And in chapter 2, verse 3, we say this, who, who is left among you who saw this temple in its former glory? And how do you see it now? Does, does it not seem to you like nothing in comparison I mean, things looked really bleak here. Like, compared to Solomon's temple, this temple they were building seems like nothing. It's so small. But Haggai knew that the Lord would use this building for His own glory and encourage the people, beginning in verse 4. He says, But now take courage, Zerubbabel, who was the lead architect building this, this temple, declares the Lord. Take courage also, Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest and all you people in the land. Take courage, declares the Lord, and work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts. As for the promise which I made when you came out of Egypt, my spirit is abiding in your midst. Do not fear. For thus says the Lord of hosts, once more, in a little while, while I'm going to shake the heavens and the earth, the sea also and the dry land, I will shake all the nations, and they will come with the wealth of all nations, and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. Well, you don't see desire of nations there. But it's there in verse 7. And uh, there's difficulty in translating this verse. But the old King James versions translates it this way. Verse 7. And I will shake all the nations and the desire of nations shall come. And I'll fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. So the, the, the idea there in the King James was that it was, it was Messiah who was going to come. It's the Lord of hosts. The new King James, twisted a little bit, says I will shake all nations and they shall come to the desire of all nations. And I'll fill this temple with glory. The New American Standard ESV uh, line says, this is the wealth of nations going to be there. So there's, there's lots of confusion exactly what, what this means. But the King James translates this like uh, Charles Wesley picked up on, like these old picked up on, is the fact that Jesus called the desire of the nations, the, the, the longing that people ought to have and will have, and Jesus will satisfy your every desire and peace and and even you see a hint of that, verse 8 and 9. <clears throat> the silver is mine, the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. That's maybe where we get the value stuff. But look at 9. The latter glory of this house will be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. So Jesus is the desire of nations which people, people long for, but they don't even know it. It's a little bit like a kid who um, we have... a. A child, a new child in our house, a say family's child, and and uh, he just refuses to taste stuff. And we say, "Why don't you taste this?" And I forget what it was the other day, but we asked him to taste it. There's lots of things. Oh, you just got to taste it. And he tasted it. He wants some more. Oh, yeah, that's what I want. But at first, he didn't know that he wanted that. That's the idea here: is the desire of nations that Jesus will come. And in in our world, that selfishness fills things with envy, quarrels, conflict, strife. But almost everyone's seeking peace. 
not everyone, but almost everyone seeking peace, but yet that peace comes through Jesus Christ, the desire of nations. And it will come when Jesus comes to rule the nations. Well, let's come. One last verse. Right at the end of the Bible. Very last two chapters. Revelation 20. It's talking about the, the desire of nations. God coming. Dwelling with us. Longing for the day when He rules and He reigns. It's a great passage in the Bible. Verses 1-4. through four. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth passed away. And there's no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for a husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men. There it is. God has come amongst us. And He will dwell among them. And they shall be His people. And God Himself will be among them. And He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And there will no longer be any death. There will be no longer any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. These words talk about the everlasting peace that's going to come in, of which Haggai Chapter 2, verse 7 is talking about when this everlasting peace is going to come in. When He's going to fill everything. When the glory of the Lord is going to shine. Indeed, He will bid envy, strife, and quarrels cease. He will fill the whole world with heaven's peace when He dwells among His people. And although this is a Christmas hymn, listen, it, it, it points beyond Christmas. It reaches that final day when God will be among us. He'll dwell among us. And the, the good news is this, is that the tabernacle of God is among men. God is dwelling among men in a greater way than even He did the first time. And the world's problems will come to an end. No more tears, no more sorrows, no more crying, no more conflict, strife, because the peace will be there. And that's why we can rejoice. Rejoice. Emmanuel shall come to thee, O Israel. And so I, I just ask you, how's your rejoicing? Rejoicing can be in the minor key, but rejoicing can be at this established, steadfast hope of the coming of Christ to establish everything. You, you know, this is the heart, O come, O come, Emmanuel. This is the heart of every believer. Look at how our Bible ends in chapter 22, verse 20. This is John. He who testifies these things says, Yes, I am coming quickly. Amen, says John. Come, Lord Jesus. And then a final word, grace of Lord Jesus Christ be with you. But second to the last verse in our Bible says, come, Lord Jesus. Come and restore everything. This is after Revelation where, where God is pouring out His wrath and He's establishing His kingdom through Jesus Christ. His, his tabernacle is among men. And he's, he's saying, God, come and be with us. And that's, that's the thrust of this hymnal, of this hymn. As we celebrate this Christmas season, think about Emmanuel, God with us. Think about Dayspring, bringing the light. Think about wisdom that gives us understanding of the gospel. And think about the desire of nations that Jesus is the one that we want to come and rule and set everything at rest. So I encourage you to be one who prays, come Lord Jesus, come Lord Jesus, the longing of our hearts. So let's pray. Father, I pray that these words would God, sink deep into our hearts and that we would long for Jesus to come in and be among us. God, O oh come, O oh come. God, we need to think about Your coming. And this Christmas season, we'll think about Your first coming, but as real as Your first coming is, O oh Lord, we, we long for Your second coming as well when You establish this kingdom with finality. So, Lord, I would pray also just this hymn, if we studied it today, um, God, may it penetrate deep in our hearts that 
our time in the stores will be a time of worship. When we hear a song on the radio, we might say, oh, that's that song. Yes, what are the words of Jesus? That's a stir our hearts to love and affection, adoration towards you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.